What's up? <laughs> welcome, 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 welcome this morning here to Elgin and uh, in our other campuses all over the place. Uh, glad to be with you guys electronically this way and uh, looking forward to a great time together with you in the Word. And I am not Michael Rydelnik. I just want to make that clear. I am the other Michael, and so that's me. But uh, I am the Michael who's going to be working with him to take a bunch of people from Harvest to Israel. Uh, we have a four-bus tour all reserved and set up. Two of the buses are full, very nearly. And so um, things are dying down in Israel. They're a whole lot better. And so if you're interested in coming, start saving now. It'll be in October of 2022, a year from now. A uh, year and a half, and we'd love to have you come. It's going to be a great trip. So a couple of things. Uh, grab your Bibles. Go to Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to be continuing our study in the book of Ephesians. And I just want to start off by talking about clothing. Um, and, and I don't get this, but in Western culture, there are, with some, with many people, a real obsession with clothes. And especially the clothes worn by, worn by celebrities. Uh, people, I'm told, were fascinated with uh, Marilyn Monroe, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, Frank Sinatra. And some of us are alive and can remember very well the fascination with the clothing of Princess Di. Today, we're really fascinated with the Kardashians or Lady Gaga or Brad Pitt and George Clooney and what they're wearing. Once upon a time, power dressing for a man was a really big deal, where you'd have a wool pinstripe suit, you know, white shirt, muted red tie, uh, wingtip shoes. You know, you'd be wearing a thousand, thousand, thousand dollar Canali suit or a suit by uh, Brooks Brothers or something. Actually, this morning, I was gonna wear my Canali suit I couldn't find the pants. It was really frustrating. I couldn't find the pants. Uh, Liesl Goker, a freelance writer, talks about what clothes sometimes do for us. She writes, fancy clothes transport you to a place where you walk elegantly. Your hair never frizzes. And the lighting is always the warm, subtle glow of a sophisticated party. Oh, and you're rich, of course, and only speak in witty repartee. Fancy clothes aren't about the people wearing them. Fancy clothes are about you wearing them, who you would be, what you would say, where you would go in them. They are a vehicle for an alternative narrative for yourself and for your life. Not one that you actively care about achieving, just one that's nice to visit now and then, so clothing can transport us to another glorious place, or something like that. Well, we have come to a passage in Scripture that tells us how to dress, not in terms of literal clothing, but by analogy, in terms of actually clothing ourselves in the virtues and the attributes and the disciplines of the Christian life. What we're going to find in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 to 24 is that the Apostle Paul says that one of our priorities is to help our Christian friends. We have a lot of priorities in the Christian life, but in the context of Ephesians 4, that's one of the higher ones. Now, there are two distinct actions that will set us up to do this well, all for his glory and for their good. Two actions that if we do well, we'll be able to serve 
and help our Christian friends. So notice, first of all, that our Christian friends need us to stop acting like unbelievers. They need us to stop being like unbelievers. In verses 17 to 19, unbelievers, we're gonna see here in these verses, are intellectually compromised, okay? And so we shouldn't be like them. In verse 17, Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds, and the futility of their minds is that there's emptiness in their thoughts as a result of the lack of the knowledge of God. And notice that what we have here is sort of the start of a number of references to things related to the mind, to one's thinking. Paul talks about how, in verse 18, for the unbelievers, their minds are darkened. They have a darkened understanding. They are in ignorance. They have hardness of heart. Positively for us, in verse 20, we're going to be learning things as Christians. In verse 21, we've heard, we've been taught the truth. All of these things are related to the stuff that we need to know in the Christian life. All oriented toward serving and helping one another in this context. And I want you to look at it. Take a look at verse 19 in chapter 4. Just, um, it says, they become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We're going to come back to that. But in verse 25 of chapter 4, the Apostle Paul says, therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. The word members here means body parts, limbs, appendages. And the idea is that we're these body parts of the body of Christ, and we are there to help each other out. But that's an awful lot of what we ought to be doing. Look at verse 21. Truth is in Jesus. Verse 24, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. If you skip down to verse 28, in chapter 4, it says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands. Why? so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. And then verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. The context here is of serving. And we saw last week with Jeff Thompson's message, so wonderfully delivered and unpacked for us, that we're all given gifts. And we're given gifts so that we can serve in the body of Christ, so that our Christian friends get built up and get strengthened, so that the church is stronger, so that we can serve God better, so that we can represent his concerns in the world in a more strong way. That's why we're given the gifts that we are. And so what Paul does in chapter 4, verses 17 and following, is to emphasize what it takes for us to be able to do that well. And what it means for us to do that well is that we have to be very different from unbelievers. In verse 18, he goes on, and he says, referring to unbelievers, that they are darkened in their understanding. And I don't, probably not much needs to be said about this, although I am going to comment about it a little bit. Especially in academics today, we have tons of people who are super smart 
and incredibly foolish both at the same time. When we start talking about, just for example, the origination of the universe, people say some very interesting things about it. Stephen Hawking and Leonard Maldonado wrote a, a book in 2010 entitled The Grand Design. And in it, they claim that God is both unlikely and unnecessary to explain the existence of the universe and that science can provide all the answers. I'm quoting now. Because there is a law like gravity, the universe can and will create itself from nothing. Now, that sounds like a scientific statement, and it comes from two scientists, but I'm here to tell you it breaks down in a couple different ways. First of all, the statement contradicts itself. The universe does not create itself from nothing if there is present in the creation of the universe gravity. Gravity is a part of the universe. And so how can gravity be a part of the universe and then create the universe? As if that would work. Secondly, even if gravity is a law, Laws don't create or do anything. There isn't mathematics, a really interesting little law, a basic law called zero properties law. Zero properties law, it sounds really complicated, doesn't it? You'll get it in just a second. Zero properties law in mathematics says that if you take any number times zero, you get zero. Pretty simple law. That's a law of mathematics. You have laws of gravity. The thing is, the law of the zero principle has never put any money in my bank account, never put gas in my car. It's never published a book. The reason for it is just law. It's just out there. But laws are not by themselves creative, and even if we have the law of gravity, it doesn't mean that gravity is going to do anything. And third, it's illogical, that statement that the universe can create itself from nothing. Uh, if X creates Y, then Y, then uh, if X creates Y, then X exists before Y and gives rise to Y. So, I mean, just, I want to, I'm gonna say this one more time. You guys get this, I know you get this. But if the universe arises from nothing, then there's nothing for the universe to arise from. Do you understand that? If you got that, would you just nod, nod your head? Oh, so I'm so sorry. So here's the thing. You have these really brilliant people who have become foolish because they want to eliminate God. They're darkened in their thinking. Alan Sandage, who's known as the father of American astronomy, died in 2010, a man who was neck deep in most of the real huge advancements in astronomy in the 20th century, became a Christian in his 50s and wrote this. I find it quite improbable that such order came out of chaos. There has to be some organizing principle. God to me is mysterious, but is the explanation for the miracle of existence, why there is something instead of nothing. It requires, I think, Christian lens to look at the universe correctly. And unfortunately, unbelievers are darkened in their thinking. In addition, 
not only are they intellectually compromised, they're spiritually impaired. Verse 18, they're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. The life of God here is the life that God gives to those who trust his son for salvation. This ignorance is a hardness of heart. A hard heart is one that is stubbornly unwilling to learn. It involves a spiritual close-mindedness. In addition, unbelievers are morally corrupted. He goes on in verse 19 to say they become callous. The word callous means to be so insensitive so as to no longer be bothered by your bad behavior. To be callous is to lose the capacity to feel shame or embarrassment. They become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality. And I'm going to define this term as well. Sensuality is to become so involved in the pursuit of lusts and indecent behavior that a person ignores the moral standards of society and abandons all concern for self-respect, decency, and the rights and the feelings of others. Now, I have in my notes a couple of examples of those, that kind of thing that unbelievers will perpetuate, oftentimes in public and oftentimes in really obscene ways. Sometimes I wonder, do they have no shame in the kind of public demonstrations of lewd behavior in which they engage? Paul goes on to say they are greedy to practice every kind of impurity, still in verse 19. The word greedy here refers to an insatiable desire to gain something. It's a readiness to sacrifice anyone or anything to satisfy our own wants. It refers to the entire disregard for the rights and the feelings of others as we are seeking to gather for ourselves and gratify ourselves. Guys, let me just propose that the more that we are like that, and all of us are like that to some degree, none of us is a saint, not completely, not, not in the, the sense that's popularly thought. None of us is a saint. None of us is perfect. But to the degree we, leave, we live more and more like this, we render ourselves more and more useless to our friends. We become less and less capable of actually assisting the body of Christ to grow in strength. And if that's part of our purpose and part of the design that God has for us, then we're missing out on that glorious and grand purpose. Now, a mid-engine Corvette was designed to go fast. If you hooked it up to a plow and decided you were going to use it to move snow out of the way, if it could think and feel, it would be massively frustrated by that. There's a sense in which it would be just so wrong to do that to a 2021 mid-engine Corvette. Guess what? Our purpose is there, among other things, in this passage, to help each other. And when we don't, something's missing. Something's out of whack. Something is not right. The more we act like unbelievers, the more we will neglect our Christian friends. 
That brings us to the second point that we'll be able to help our Christian friends really well if, first of all, uh, we stop acting more like unbelievers, and then second, our Christian friends need us to practice our identity in Christ, verses 20 to 24. Our new identity involves several things. It involves, first of all, learning the truth, verse 20 and 21. He says in verse 20, Paul does, but that is not the way you learned Christ. And so now he contrasts um, how unbelievers live with how we can live and how we should live. This is not the way that you've learned Christ, really. And that's an interesting statement, isn't it? It, it's, it doesn't say, this is not the way you've learned about Christ, or, or, or this is not what you've learned as it relates to Jesus, but this is, this is not the way you learned Christ. And I take it so we're not only talking about learning about Jesus, but there's something more here, I think. I think learning Christ means that not only have we received him as salvation, but we walk with him. We welcome him as we welcome his word. We pray to him. We develop our relationship with him. So my wife and I, my wife's name is Sue, uh, we've been married for over 44 years. Before we got married, we never spent more than two weeks together at any one stretch of time. We did that twice. I was in school 100 miles away from where her home was, and, and my home home was in Seattle. And so when I wasn't at school 100 miles from her, I was in Seattle, you know, 3,000 miles from her. She was in Nebraska. And it was really interesting because I got to know her super well through the mail, writing letters. Do you remember stamps? Do you remember those things? We on occasion would phone each other and, and back in those days we had to use, you know, landlines and stuff. And so this is 45 years ago and there was one month where we had a $300 phone bill. So I learned about Sue that way, and it was remarkable how much we learned. And we were together, you know, for those two weeks at a time, but for the most part, we were not together that much. And all of a sudden, then, when we got married, and we began to live together, I began to study her. Not just her letters. I began to learn her. And there's something about being nose-to-nose face-to-face, living with one another that sort of opens up your relationship, and that's the idea here. That we learn Christ over time as we pursue him in sincerity. Verse 21, Paul says, assuming that you have heard about him, so we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. When it says, as the truth is in Jesus, that could be translated because the truth is in Jesus. That, that is, we heard about him, we were taught in him because the truth is in Jesus. Listen, I want to say this, you know, we say this kind of stuff at Harvest all the time, but I want to say it now before I go on. This book is true. It is the truth. It is so amazing to me that in the time that I taught at Moody Bible Institute, over the years, I probably had conversation with 20 or so students who would come in to me and tell me, you know, Dr. V, I've lost my faith. I'm going to abandon Jesus. I don't believe in the Christian life anymore. And I inevitably would go and I'd ask them the question, what have you been reading? 
And they would tell me, you know, some godless, secular, atheistic, liberal, theological thing. And then I would ask them, so tell me what you've been reading on the other side of that issue written by Christian people. And 100% of the time, in all of those conversations, I got the response, nothing. Here's the thing. Christianity is true. It has withstood attacks for 2,000 years. And when those attacks come along, I'm here to tell you that there are brilliant Christian men and women who write about those things and address those issues and refute them so well. But in my experience, people never abandon Jesus because Christianity isn't true. They abandon Jesus for moral reasons. They don't want the Lord to be king of their life anymore. They want to have the autonomy to be able to do what they want. Or they just allow that sort of intellectual headiness of breaking outside of the box of conservative evangelicalism. And they begin to follow that and sometimes become intellectually arrogant. Or they just want to do immoral things. And so they abandon Christianity not because it's not true, not because it's weak, but because of a moral reason. So we are taught in Jesus because truth is in him. So not only are we to learn the truth, but we're also to strip off the old self. Verse 22. You were taught, Paul says, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Listen, the desires are deceitful because desires tell us, look, go do this sinful thing, and when you go and do it, you're going to feel really good. That's what, that's what desires tell us. They lie to us. And so when we go and do them, it might feel real good, but in the end, they take a toll on us. So we're to put off the old self. This is, by the way, a kind of a command. It's a good pastoral sort of a command. This is not something that's optional for us. This is something that we are supposed to do. Now, in an attempt to channel Tommy Kreutz, <laughs> I brought some clothes along. And it fulfilled a very important role for me. I think in these clothes I changed oil. I probably mowed and did some other yard work. Do you know what happens when you sweat into clothes and then they don't really dry out that very well? Do you know what happens with that? I chose to put those on to do something. But when I was done with that task, I also took them off. I wasn't going to come and preach to you in those clothes. I got dressed up this morning to come and preach to you this morning. I wasn't going to go preach in those. But I decided to put those on. And I decided I should take them off when I was done with that. And that's the idea here. When Paul says that we to put off our old self, that word put off carries a sense and was used in Greek society for taking off your clothes. And so what we are supposed to do 
is to decide that those Christian, non-Christian things that we do, those sinful things that we do, we're going to strip those off. We're going to make a decision to do so. Now, I think it's important for us to sort of make a one-time life decision that says, basically, Lord, I'm going to do my very best to set aside sin, and I'm going to live, live for you. But I think also it needs to be almost moment by moment where we make those sort of determinations. But we have to decide to do this. Now, I want to talk about this old self, put off your old self. It's so interesting. In Romans chapter 6, and you don't need to turn there. I think that we're going to have these in some slides. In Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 8, Paul writes, For if we have become united with him, with Jesus, in the likeness of his death, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be, done, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin for one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, I want you to notice in Romans chapter 6, God killed our old self. It says in the context of Romans 6 that we were crucified with Jesus on his cross in a spiritual sense. That was something that God did to us, that God did for us. The old self is not a sin nature or it's not an aspect of us. In Romans 6, Paul says, we were crucified with Christ. We died on the cross. We were in the grave with him. He has risen from the dead and we've been raised to newness of life to experience a resurrection later. It's us. So who's the old self? It's who we were as unbelievers. It's who we were in connection with and dominated by Adam. It's who we were with sin as a master over us. That's the old self. So God has crucified that old self, and that old self doesn't exist anymore. We're not in Adam anymore. We're not under the domination of sin. We're in Jesus. We're under the realm of grace now. But here Paul says we have to remove the old selves from us. It's so interesting. In Scripture, there is a thing that is called the indicative versus the imperative. I'm going to use the word the fact versus function. The fact is God killed our old self. That's the fact. Romans 6 says it. Old self was crucified with him. And yet Paul says here that we were taught that we have to lay aside the old self. So which is it? Did God do this to us and for us? Or do we have to do this? And the answer, frustratingly, is yes. Both. The thing is that the fact of what God has done for us undergirds and makes possible the function that we're supposed to do, and that is setting aside the old self. The fact that God has done this for us means that we can have more and more success at the function of setting these things aside. Just give you another example. Again, talking about my wife. Sorry, she hates it when I do this. 
By the way, my wife, the reason why we've been married so long, she has a good sense of humor and a bad sense of smell. She does. That's the success of our marriage. That and the grace of God, you know? I think my wife, along with maybe Eva Rodelnik, besides Jesus, are the only are the only people beside Jesus who were born without a sin nature. It's just an amazing thing. So guess what? I am a husband. The state of Nebraska and Dale Phillips, Pastor Dale Phillips, said so on Saturday, March 20, uh, May 21st, 1977. I am a husband. Now, that's the fact. So I got to function like a husband now. And so we, we're, we're in those kinds of situations all the time. Where, where something is true of us, but then we need to live it out. Every one of us is probably in a situation like that. Well, it's true in the Christian life as well. So we have this fact versus function. I gotta say this. In scripture, it says some very interesting things about us. It says that we have been crucified with Christ, and yet we're still alive. It says that our old self has been removed by God, and yet we have to remove the old self. In Romans chapter 8, it says that we've been adopted into God's family, verse 15, chapter 8. But in verse 23 23 in Romans chapter 8, it says we await our adoption as sons and daughters. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says that we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places, and yet here we are in Elgin sitting. There is this thing related to fact and function between things that are true of us now and things that are going to be true of us in the future called the now and the not yet. And I just got to say this. I don't know if anybody's ever preached this here at Harvest. No wonder the Christian life is awkward. No wonder it's hard. It's because things that we know are true of us that are said in the word, those things oftentimes don't line up very well with our experience, and yet they're true. And so I also want to maintain that the facts that undergird how we ought to be functioning that guarantee some success those facts will not be fully realized until the future. And in the resurrection, all the stuff that we're promised will finally be ours and we will experience them fully. I can't wait for that day. Sometimes it's just so frustrating to try to live as a Christian. The Lord's going to help us. And we have the Spirit to strengthen us. And that's where Paul goes next. Not only do we need to uh, be learning the truth, strip off the old self, we need to be refreshed in our minds. He writes in verse 23 that we've been taught to be renewed in the spirit of your, not, of your minds. And here I think that it would be better if the ESV would have translated spirit with a capital S. I think this is the Holy Spirit. Every time Paul uses the word spirit in the book of Ephesians, it refers to the Holy Spirit. 
And I think that that's the idea here as well. In Ephesians 1.17, it also talks about how, how in the book of Ephesians, one of the things the Spirit does is he helps us with things related to our minds. Um, we, Paul prays in Ephesians 1.17 that we'll receive the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. That's a mental thing. Ephesians 3.16, that he prays that, that um, through the power of the Lord we would be strengthened in our inner being through his spirit. And so the spirit of our minds, it looks at the Holy Spirit working in us, working in our minds, helping our minds to get what it means to be a Christian, the importance of setting aside the old, evil, wicked stuff, the idea of being transformed in our minds through the power of the Spirit as we depend upon him. I take it that as we absorb the word of God, the word of God works in us. First Thessalonians 2.13, it's at work in us who believe. And as the Spirit uses the word, he helps us make progress. Lastly, the fourth thing that we need to be doing in this passage so that we can help unbelieving or helping our believer friends better is that we need to put on the new self. So the flip side of taking off the old self is putting on the new self, created after the likeness of God. And this is literally created according to God or created because of God. That is, God makes us new. And yet we need to put that on. And we're created because of God, literally, in true righteousness and holiness. I take it righteousness here refers to uprightness, virtue. Holiness here refers to our attitude of devotion toward God, being committed to him. But I want you to notice as well that this righteousness and this holiness isn't just in terms of our relationship with God. It is an uprightness in terms of our interaction with our Christian friends. It's a devotion to God that leads us to be devoted to them as well. Came across a story a while back from Leadership Magazine. It goes like this. Pastor Mark Thompson of Faribault, Minnesota, uh, was attacked by an assailant in his home one night. And it was a pretty vicious attack. It took him a long time to recover. So long, in fact, that his son, who was an expert high school cross-country runner, had a chance to compete well in the Minnesota State cross-country meet. But Mark couldn't go because of his wounds, and he was recovering. According to the St. Paul Pioneer Press and Dispatch, a magazine, Mark called his brother, Merv, and said, look, I can't be there to see Chris run. I want you to go at the beginning of the race, holler a lot, then at the end, I want you to cheer real loudly, and I want you to make your voice sound like mine. And so Merv heeded the advice. Chris ran a strong race, finishing second in the state. Merv, also a pastor, discerned the theological truth in the story, and he said, that's what Jesus wants us to do, to make our voice sound like his. Jesus wants, to put, wants us to put on the new man, which looks a lot like him. In Colossians chapter 3, we're told to, we're told to put on Christ. And what we're supposed to do is that we're just supposed to make our voice sound like his voice. 
for one another in the body of Christ and out there in the world as well. And this is how we go about that, by becoming more truly Christian and less worldly. People who are consumed with their own gratification aren't going to be terribly concerned about helping others. That'll be true of a Christian who's way too much in sin. So this week, let me make a couple of suggestions that we might do by way of application. So this week, try this. Stop one thing you do regularly that is seriously time-wasting thing. I don't know, watching videos, uh, uh, playing video games. Nothing wrong with playing video games, gotta keep it in balance. And they have to be wholesome. Uh, maybe we're not gonna go searching endlessly on the web for how to stock our trailer well. Maybe we're not gonna go searching endlessly on the web or anything else for the kind of furniture we wanna put in our living room. But, but something that, that does often preoccupy our time, stop that and instead call, text, or email a Christian friend who needs encouragement. So let's take our eyes off of ourself and off of our own thing for a second and let's put it somewhere else. Let's put it on somebody else who might need some help. That's part of what we're supposed to be doing. In the same way that we make conscious decisions to wear certain clothes for specific situations, we must consciously choose to dress in the behavior of our new identity in Christ. I hope we'll do that. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, it always makes me nervous when an application is, oh Lord, help us to sin less. And yet if we do, if we are less consumed with ourselves, if we are less prone to stomp on others to gain the things that we crave, just maybe we'll be more capable of fulfilling our purpose of helping each other out. Lord, you know there's tons of people around us that are struggling, our brothers and sisters in Christ, but non-Christians too. And so, Father, I want to pray that you would help us to fulfill our destiny in this regard. We might serve them better for their good, for your glory, and for the furtherance, Lord, of your kingdom. Make it so, would you please, Lord, in Jesus' name I pray, and all God's people said.